another episode of the Around the Show Sports Podcast. As always, this is your host, Kyle Showalter, and I think I say this all the time, but once again, it's the best time of the sports calendar. I know we say this constantly in the industry, but this might really be the best time. The NFL playoffs are here. The NBA season is in full swing. The MLB's hot stove is finally heating up. Last night, we got to watch the Nets take on the Bucks come away with a nail-biting win when Kevin Durant and James Harden hit late shots. They're looking like a real threat for the NBA championship, maybe facing the Lakers in the NBA Finals. George Springer found his new home in Toronto on a six-year, $160 million deal. The only big-ticket names we're still looking at in the MOB are JT Realmuto and Trevor Bauer. Once those guys get signed, we're going to have a pretty good picture of what next year's MLB rosters are going to look like. So moving forward, there's a lot to talk about, but I want to start and stick with the NFL this week because it's the it's the championship round. This is what you play for. It's to get to this game, to win, and go to the Super Bowl. But I want to talk about first a team that lost last week in the divisional round, and that's the Baltimore Ravens. And I think that this team has a really distinct issue. And I think that issue is on offense. And it might sound weird to talk about the number seven ranked scoring offense in the NFL and say that there's a problem. You know, they have Lamar, J.K. Dobbins, Mark Andrews, Hollywood Brown, a good O-line. What's possibly plaguing the team that was first in rushing yards, had the most rushing attempts, the third most rushing touchdowns, and the fourth best third down offense this season? You might ask, what is that problem? And it's because they refuse to throw the football. 32nd in passing yards this year, 32nd in attempts, 32nd in completions. And I say this is an issue because we all know this. If you can't throw in today's NFL, you're not going to win. You might win games. You might make the playoffs. When everything's on the line, you're not outscoring Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs by running the football 40 times a game. It's just not going to work. And I know what you're going to say. The Ravens offense last year was great, and they ran the ball all game long. And yeah, I got to give that to you. But the Ravens were also the most prolific rushing team of all time last year. Literally, number one rushing attack ever. That's not sustainable. They can't do that every year. But last year, the Ravens were last in pass attempts too, just like this year. Yeah, true, I'll give you that. Lamar also led the league in passing touchdowns. And according to Football Outsiders, the 2019 Ravens had the number one passing attack in the league according to their DVOA model, which had them at a 52.7% score, meaning that they were 52.7% better as a passing attack than the average NFL team. This year, where'd they rank? 17th, 13.9%, right around the average NFL team. That same metric had Lamar graded as a below-average quarterback this year at negative 0.7%, again, 0.7% worse than an average NFL quarterback. Now, where was he last year? Number two, with a 34.9% score. Now, ESPN's quarterback rating was kinder to him, ranking him eighth this year, but where did he rank last year? First. You can look at any metric. Lamar simply regressed this year. And I want to take a look into what happened. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that last year wasn't replicable. Lamar Jackson was extraordinary to the point where it wasn't achievable again. He threw more touchdowns from the pocket and more touchdowns against the Blitz than anyone in the league last year. That's just not who Lamar is. Lamar is a great pocket passer, but he's not the best pocket passer in the NFL. 
He's great pre-snap at reading the blitz and finding who the open guy is going to be, but he's not the best in the league. I think who Lamar is as a passer in the NFL is a lot closer to this year than last year. And that's okay if you're a Ravens fan because how special he is as a runner. I am okay with this being the norm for Lamar in terms of his arm. What this team desperately needs, and I mean desperately, is a more sophisticated passing attack. We all remember the quotes from earlier this year, right? Where Lamar says that defenses at the line were calling out their plays before they even finished lining up. Greg Roman, the Ravens offensive coordinator, has gotten a lot of praise over the last two years for the creativity of his rushing attack, but I'm not willing to give him a pass for the fact that he struggled to design a passing attack that challenges defenses. Everything they run up there is simple. It's very elementary for an NFL offense, and that's a problem even if you have a guy like Lamar at quarterback who is an enigma. He's something that he's unlike anything we've ever seen before. But the reality is, if you can't design plays to get guys open, especially with the wide receivers that the Ravens have, you're setting him up to fail. And that's something that we can't just gloss over. We have to talk about how bad these Ravens wide receivers are. The Ravens had one wide receiver go for over 500 yards this season. They only had three players catch more than 30 balls. One of them was a tight end, Mark Andrews, who's the best pass catcher on the team. Only four players caught 20. Now, for reference, the Buffalo Bills, an elite offensive team, something that we want the Ravens to be, had three wide receivers go for over 500 yards and six players catch more than 30 passes. One of those guys was John Brown. He only played in nine games. And I think that the combination of these things, this the elementary status of their passing attack, as well as the limitations that their wide receivers give them, are what's holding these Ravens team back from being in the upper echelon of teams in the NFL. We know they have the quarterback. We know they have the O-line. We know they have the rushing attack, the coaching staff, and the defense to compete for Super Bowls year after year. But the truth is, if they can't throw the ball, it's going to take catching lightning in a bottle for them to be successful in the playoffs. It's not impossible, but I wouldn't bet on it. And that's simply not good enough when you have a franchise quarterback. Now, I want to move on to the team that eliminated the Ravens from the playoffs, and that's the Buffalo Bills. And I want to talk about something that I think isn't getting talked about enough, and that's how special what the Bills did this season was. Now, I'm not talking about going 13-3 and and making it to the AFC Championship game. That's something that all teams strive for. They all want to get to this point. You know, I want to have a great regular season. I want to have success in the playoffs. I'm talking about something entirely different, and it's something that the Buffalo Bills do as well as any team in the league, and it's the process that leads up to that point. That's the big word, is their process, and we talk about it all the time in the NFL. What's the most common trope that we hear? The Patriot way. Another common one is we want to build a culture. We hear this from every NFL head coach when they take over a team, that he wants to come in and build his culture and coach the guys his way, and they all need to buy in. Now, Sean McDermott, the Bills head coach, took care of this the second he took over in Buffalo. He commanded the respect of the locker room. The guys gravitated towards him. His effect on the team is obvious. But what about building the roster? that part of the process that so many teams, even when they find the head coach, struggle with. That, I would argue, is even more important 
than the culture set by the coach. Once your coach establishes this culture, how are you as the GM giving him the tools to be successful? You build your team through the draft. You stockpile young talent. You develop that talent. These are guys that the Bills have like Tredavious White, who might be the best cover corner in the NFL. Ed Oliver, who after underachieving his rookie year is starting to come around and look like a solid centerpiece for this defense for a long time. And then Tremaine Edmonds, who's one of the best interior linebackers in the NFL. Now what else do you do? You go into the draft, you take a guy, you trust him, you develop him, and you believe in him. And then you give him the tools around him to succeed. You sign veterans, and then when one of the best players in the NFL becomes available via trade, you go out and get him, especially when it's at a discount. The Bills have done all of this. The aforementioned Tredavious White, Ed Oliver, and Tremaine Edmonds. Taking and developing Josh Allen with the help of assistant coach Brian Dable, who's going to make a great NFL coach one day, especially if he lands a job with a quarterback similar to Josh Allen. They go out and they trade for Stefan Diggs when he's available. This is an organizational success story. This isn't a quarterback carrying a maligned franchise or a coach dragging his quarterback and the rest of the roster along through a great scheme. This is a complete effort by an entire organization to do the right thing every single day. They found the coach to guide the team in the right direction. They hit on their draft picks. They used their draft capital to acquire impact players when they saw the opportunity. And most importantly, they hit on the quarterback. This is what a model NFL franchise looks like because of that one word we talked about. Process. Remember in 2017 when the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl with an entire roster of overachieving veterans and then tried to run it back with the same formula for multiple years? 9-7, 9-7, They don't have a process. Most NFL teams don't have a process. They wing it every single year. They throw darts at the board and hope that they stick. This Bills team has that process down to a T. While teams like the Eagles simply hope to be competitive every year, the Bills have built this thing to last, and it's why in three years, they're going to be competing for Super Bowls, not fighting to make the playoffs. And we talk about these great sustainable situations and franchises giving their quarterbacks all of the tools to succeed, and we flash back to all of those years ago in San Diego, watching Phillip Rivers carry some years, these Chargers teams, and lose these heartbreaking games that only San Diego, now LA, knows how. And, you know, Phillip Rivers is a guy that I grew up loving to watch play, and he announced his retirement on Wednesday, and I think truly that he should be a Hall of Famer at some point. Rivers played 16 years for the Chargers, and then an extra year in in Indianapolis with the Colts. And I, like I said, I watched him play a lot. And hearing that he retired, it it made me a little bit sad. You know, that's a guy that I grew up on. It made me think about how much the quarterback landscape in the NFL is starting to change. These guys that I grew up watching are starting to fade out. Guys like Carson Palmer, Peyton, and Eli Manning, they've been out of the league. Now we have guys like Big Ben who feels like he's on his way out. 
an announcement from Drew Brees feels like it's imminent at this point, and Philip Rivers announced that he's retiring. Now we go to the other end of the spectrum with these young guys, and we're seeing all of these new careers come up and blossom. It's amazing. Guys like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray are taking the league by storm. Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert were electrifying as rookie battling for passing records before Joe Burrow went down with the ACL tear. Baker Mayfield turned the corner this year and looks like he's going to be the starter in this league for a really long time. Now think about those lists and notice that I left four names off of there. Two old heads and two young guns. The legendary Tom Brady. Six Super Bowl rings. The most passing touchdowns in NFL history. Three MVP awards. The winningest quarterback of all time. Simply put, the most accomplished player in NFL history. And then there's the equally legendary Aaron Rodgers. The fun-loving Packers quarterback whose dominance on the field surpasses Brady's, although his overall resume doesn't. And then over to the young guys, Josh Allen, whose team we just talked about. He exploded onto the scene this season after flashing his potential the previous two. He might have the strongest arm of any quarterback that's ever played football. He's athletic, he's strong, he can make any throw, and it only looks like he's going to keep getting better as time goes on. And then, of course, there's Patrick Mahomes, the kid who needs no introduction. This weekend's championship games, the games to go to the Super Bowl, they feel like they're more than that. At least to me, they feel like a bridge between the quarterbacks that we've spent the last 15 years watching and falling in love with and hating. Norm, everything that encompasses being a football fan, we've watched these guys do it for 15 years. They're on one side of the playoff bracket, and then on the other side, we get to watch the two guys that will spend the next 15 years watching and loving and hating and doing all of the same stuff that we've got to watch this previous generation of quarterbacks and feel. On Sunday, we're going to get to watch the greats of football's past and the greats of football's future in the present. And I can't even say how special that is. And now going into those actual games and what we're going to be watching on the field, regardless of how they turn out, it's going to be a treat. But I do want to break down, you know, what I think we're going to see in these games, specifically who is going to be advancing to the Super Bowl once these games are over. And I want to start in Kansas City. And I really think this game has the potential to go one of two ways. The first is that it could be an absolute shootout between Mahomes and Allen. You know, Mahomes and Allen rank second and third in DVOA this season, respectively, and these offenses both feature unbelievable weapons around their quarterbacks. We know the story in Buffalo with Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley, one of the best slot receivers in the NFL, and then just point blank, one of the best receivers in the NFL. And then you go over to Kansas City, and we can talk all day about Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, the fastest player in the NFL and maybe the best tight end that we've ever seen, definitely the most skilled. But both these teams also have defenses that are peaking at the right time. They both feature a superstar defensive back, that's Tyron Matthew on one side and Tredavious White on the other, and they both feature a pass rush that is amongst the league's best when dialed in. Now, I want to watch these guys throw the ball over the field and run the score up on each other, but my gut tells me that with Mahomes' toe injury, not his concussion, it's going to affect Kansas City's game plan. At the end of the day, I think the Chiefs win 27-21 to 
Josh Allen has the ball at the end, the Chiefs defense makes one last stop, and the Chiefs head back to the Super Bowl to defend their title. And now the game on the other end of the bracket, the NFC Championship game between the two best quarterbacks that we have ever seen play this game. I, I can't get over that. I, every time I think about this game, I get the chills, man. How, how often do we get to see two of the best at anything go head-to-head? Especially with the stakes like this. We never got to see LeBron and Michael Jordan ever play against each other. We get to watch the LeBron and Michael Jordan of football play against each other to go to the Super Bowl. Like I can't even communicate how special that is. In terms of the game itself, I think this is a difficult one to call. This is a game that's going to come down, I think, to which quarterback handles the other side's pass rush better. Think back to week six when these two teams faced each other. What killed the Packers and Aaron Rodgers was the pass rush. Rodgers had no time to throw. He was sacked four times and had his only multi-interception game of the season. That was on the pass rush. And that was before they lost the best left tackle in the league, David Bakhtiari. On to the other side, Brady has struggled mightily under pressure this season. I think that that's a pretty well understood thing, but he ranked 21st in quarterback rating when under pressure. The Packers pressured Jared Goff on 15 of his 31 dropbacks last week in their win over the Rams. Ultimately, I think that it's Rodgers and the Packers outmuscling Brady and the Bucks and heading back to the Super Bowl 31-28. And moving on to the story of the show, this, this hurts. For the second week in a row, the story of the show isn't something fun. It isn't me talking about, you know, something great Patrick Mahomes did or some unbelievable NBA storyline. It's another baseball story that asks, what the hell is going on here? This shouldn't be the case. The MLB offseason is in full swing. I should be talking about free agency and blockbuster trades and prospect rankings and where teams stack up. But instead, I'm here talking about Jared Porter. The Mets general manager that in 2016 sent a foreign reporter that moved to the United States to cover baseball over 60 unanswered texts, one of them featuring a picture of his penis. And Jared Porter has since been fired, but that's not the point. The point is that ESPN had this story for over three years before they reported it, and I'm not blaming ESPN. This was at the request of the woman Porter harassed because she feared that she would be viewed as a perpetrator in this exchange and not a victim. Like she is the one who should be ashamed of Porter's actions. The only reason that we know of this story, the only reason ESPN released it, is because the woman who is so terrified of connecting with Porter again, has left the industry. Jared Porter, a man in power, harassed this woman who moved from her home country to the United States to cover baseball to do what she loved so badly that she is no longer a reporter. That is the point. And this goes so far beyond Jared Porter. This is just one new example of the long list of misogynistic tendencies that we see in the industry of sports. Women shouldn't have to come into this industry, one that's already so difficult to break into and live in fear of their colleagues or those they interact with in order to do their job. Jared Porter didn't do this even as her colleague. He did this as someone who she had to directly interact with in order to do her job. 
He was the Cubs' director of professional scouting. He abused his position of power in order to harass a woman who was simply doing her job, which is trying to get information from a source who works in the personnel department on an MLB team. This isn't a woman in sports issue. It's a sports issue, period. And I'm not saying that we haven't come a long way in the sports industry. Mina Kimes is the first female analyst on ESPN studio show NFL Live. ESPN blazed a similar trail with Jessica Mendoza on their MLB broadcast team. It was just announced that Sarah Thomas is going to become the first woman to ever officiate a Super Bowl when she works Super Bowl 55 in two weeks. All of this is progress, and I applaud the industry and I'm glad to see it. Women belong in sports. The Jared Porter story, however, shows us that we still have a hell of a long way to go. (laughs) 